Kia ora, ko Sarah Burgess tuku ingoa, he pohitori ki te Manatū Taonga. Hi there, I'm Sarah Burgess, a historian at Manatū Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. Welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast Channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture and society. These talks are co-hosted by Manatū Taonga and Te Puna Matauranga o Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand, and are recorded live at the library each month. Before we get into this talk, just a quick warning that this episode does contain a few swear words. Kia ora koutou, no mai haere mai, ko Neil Toko Ingoa. Um, welcome everyone, I'd like to, um, I'm particularly pleased to, to uh, introduce Ryan Bobman um, to speak today, um, because as some of you may remember, we, we actually had him um, planned to, to speak to us uh, last year, in fact twice, um, and we were thwarted by, um, by COVID on both occasions. So, you know, really pleased that um, we've been able to, um, to bring, bring, him, bring him to Wellington uh, to talk today about um, the value of social media as a 21st century history research tool. So over the past um, five years, and, and in fact he informs me maybe a little bit longer than that in fact, um, Ryan has been researching and writing um, this history of rugby league in New Zealand history, um, which looks at um, the social and cultural history of, of this football uh, code in New Zealand. And as part of this project, he has um, brought, a, a, brought a collaborative um, component to his research through the use of uh, social media. And um, in this talk, he's going to explore um, how he's used social media in the development of the book, with particular attention on, on, the, on its value to academic historians uh, seeking to engage with people outside the university setting. So please join me in welcoming Ryan to the stage. Tina koutou, tina koutou, tina tato katoa. Nga mihi nui ki a koutou katoa. Ki te atua, tina koe. Kia papa tuanuku tina koe. Ki ngā tangata whenua, ngāti toa raua ko Tiatiawa, Māori ora. Ko kaimahi pā ki a te iwi, nō tauranga moana a hau, ko Ryan Bodman tōku ingoa. Tūhia ki te rangi, tūhia ki te whenua, tūhia ki te ngākau o ngā tangata, ko te mia nui, ko te aroha. Tihei, Māori ora. Tina koutou, tina koutou, tina tātou katoa. Thank you for coming along to this session of Manatū Taonga's Public History Talks, and thank you to Sarah Burgess and Emma Kelly for inviting me along. Today I want to speak to you all about the process of researching and writing Rugby League in New Zealand History, which is a book-length study of the football code in this country that I began working on back in 2014. Specifically, I want to talk to you about the use of social media as a tool in the development of that project, and to reflect on the value of Facebook and other social media platforms to those of us studying the past from the perspective of the digital age. I'm hoping that some of what I have to say will spark commentary and feedback from some of you. So with that in mind, I'm going to try and wrap this talk up within half an hour so we can have a 20 rather than 10 minute discussion at the end. So with that said, I'll launch straight in. Like many of us, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. At a time in my life when I'm actively trying to cultivate a greater focus on the present moment, Social media can be a real distraction, but as a historian, I have found social media to be a powerful tool in my efforts to promote public engagement with my work. I suspect social media has been used by historians since the platforms became mainstream 10 to 15 years ago. But it was Dr. Michael Stevens' Facebook page, A World History of Bluff, that first made me aware of the potential value that these platforms could bring to my work as a historian. 
Dr. Stevens developed his Facebook page in tandem with his own book length project. And on that project's website, he explains the purpose of the book's social media presence as follows. This project has a Facebook page largely to keep people up to date with its progress and findings, writes Stevens. However, it would be great if it also generated some discussion about aspects of Bluff's history, as the Bluffies Facebook group and the Bluff 2024 Urban, Reju Urban Rejuvenation Facebook page often do. In line with his hopes for the page, Dr. Stevens posts to the World History of Bluff Facebook account often attract a significant number of engagements. And when I took a closer look at who was engaging with his page, I noticed that Dr. Stevens was using his project social media presence to get his ideas and research before what looked like a broad variety of people. Alongside fellow academic historians, Dr. Stevens' posts were reaching and inciting an active response from members of the public with a connection to or interest in Bluff, as well as local and amateur historians whose interests in the Deep South overlap with those of Dr. Stevens. And it was this use of Facebook as a tool to cut across the silos that sometimes dominate the landscape of historic inquiry in New Zealand that initially caught my attention. In my relatively short time as a New Zealand historian, I've noticed that there is a tendency in our field to cast public and academic histories as distinct approaches to the study of the past. I guess I come from the academic side of this ledger, and it's been my experience that in the university context, journal publications and attendance at conferences with fellow academics are viewed to be valuable uses of our time, while little, if any, value is placed on making intelligent content available and accessible to a wider audience. We could probably spend many hours debating why this is the case, and we probably should. But for the moment, can I just say that I think the current state of play largely reflects structural issues, as employment in the modern university context is often precarious, and any hope of maintaining that employment has come to be increasingly tied to an academic's ability and willingness to meet a set of prescribed outputs. But academic life hasn't always placed so little value on the education of the people. There's a wonderful passage in the Noam Chomsky reader, Understanding Power, in which Chomsky reflects on the tradition of public education that existed at some American and British universities during the interwar period. That was one of the big things in the 1930s for left intellectuals to be involved in, explained Chomsky. Good scientists, well-known, important scientists, just felt like it was part of their obligation to the human species to do popular science. So you had very good books being written about physics and about mathematics and so on. For instance, there's a book called Mathematics for the Millions by Lance Hogman, which is an example of it. He came out of the left. And the point is, those people just felt that this kind of knowledge should be shared by everyone. If you're privileged enough to say no mathematics and you think you're part of the general world, obviously you should try to help other people understand it. In this passage, Chomsky is speaking to a very different time and a very different place to that which we currently find ourselves. But the themes that he touches on, that knowledge is a public good, and that those of us privileged enough to have access to it, have a responsibility to make it up, um, available to others, strike a chord that lies deep within me. I was originally planning on studying the history of rugby league in New Zealand as a topic for a PhD thesis, but after sharing some of my academic writings with my parents, I began to have second thoughts. 
My mum and dad, Garth and Julia Bodman, don't have higher formal qualifications, but they are both intelligent people. Despite this, the academic articles that I had managed to get published during my time at uni were essentially impenetrable to them. As the style expected in those publications places little value on accessibility, and generally assumes that the reader will have a degree of familiarity with the topic under discussion. And this realisation that pieces of work that I had really struggled to create were of almost no value to some of the people I love the most in this world really got me thinking, you know? What's the point of writing like this? I didn't go to university to become part of an exclusive club. I went there to learn. And if the people who raised me can't engage with the stories that I'm trying to uncover, what the fuck is the point of writing? <laughs> So I abandoned the PhD idea and I began working on a history of rugby league in my spare time around the far more important and far more stressful job of looking after these two. Just a heads up, Ryan is talking about his two kids. That's Rosa on the right and Archie on the left, taking a quick food break from the pools. In line with what I've just told you, when I started on this project in 2014, I set myself the goal of writing a history that is academically credible but publicly accessible. Whether I have achieved this goal remains to be seen, as the first draft of the text has only recently made it to a publisher. But when I saw how Dr Stevens was using his project's social media account to get his academic research and ideas before a broad variety of people, I knew that Facebook could be a valuable tool in my own work as a historian. So in September 2017, I set up the Rugby League and New Zealand History Facebook page, describing it as a page to connect with league fans and historians as I research and write the book. And over subsequent years, the page has filled that purpose well, helping me to get my ideas and research before a much larger audience than would have been possible without this technology. And by making some of my research available in this way, the engagements made possible through Facebook have served to both affirm the value of my work and also brought an incredible amount of additional value to the project. For those of you unfamiliar with Facebook, good on you. <laughs> the platform allows users to engage with material posted to a page in a variety of ways. Facebook users can like, love, dislike or laugh at a post. They can comment on a thread below a post and they can share posts to their personal accounts or to pages that they administer. And through these different types of engagements, you get a pretty clear idea of how material shared to a page is being received by those engaging with it. The first post to the page that received significant attention was one I wrote about the involvement of Pacific peoples in the history of rugby league in New Zealand back in late 2017. The post spoke of the post-war Pacific diaspora, which saw many thousands of Pacific peoples migrate from the tropical Pacific to these South Pacific islands in response to sustained labour shortages here. As many of these newcomers made their homes in working class towns and suburbs, some embraced rugby league. And the post spoke specifically to the connection that developed between the game and members of Tokoroa's Cook Island community, who established the Pacific Rugby League Club in that South Waikato town in 1969. Despite some anxiety as to what right I had to tell the story of these people, the post about the Pacific Rugby League Club and its connection to Tokoroa's Cook Island community was enthusiastically picked up by people associated with the club. One user whose father's dissertation I had referenced in the post wrote, this is awesome, truly is a proud and humbling moment. Thank you for sharing. 
Another follower responded, good read, well done Pacific. And then another expressed her pride in the club's proud on-field record. There will never be another team like our fathers. Chahoo! <laughs> in this way, the engagement options available through Facebook mean that the platform can provide a useful gauge on how material shared to a page is received by those engaging with it. I have found this to be particularly useful as a means to assess the value of material that explores the popularity of rugby league in communities that I have little or no connection to. And as well as serving to affirm the value of my research outputs, engagements with my project made possible through social media have also brought an incredible amount of value to the work. As already noted, a key goal in the development of this project is to produce a book that bridges the public academic divide. And the book Social Media Presence has supported this goal. In his book, Limbo, Blue Collar Roots, White Collar Dreams, the Italian-American journalist Alfred Lubrano reflects on some of the defining values of blue-collar working-class Americans. Working-class life is not an area of study that has attracted much interest in New Zealand recently, as social class has been an unfashionable tool for understanding these islands for some time now. But much of what Lubrano has to say about America rings true here, with the key values he identifies in his work including an emphasis upon family, a deep respect for parents and elders, a strong sense of loyalty, and an open and honest manner that is devoid of hidden agenda or subtext. In the local context, we'd articulate that last point by suggesting that working class people call a spade a spade, or they say when shit stinks. And in light of Rugby League's historic association with working class people, my efforts to write an accessible history have occasionally benefited from this forthright manner. In 2019, I posted some material to the Facebook page that discussed the history of rugby league in New Zealand in the 1990s. Across that decade, there was a significant growth in the size of New Zealand's underclass. As the neoliberal economic agenda of the 80s and 90s devastated working class communities all over New Zealand. As a result of the history being covered, some of the issues discussed in the post were quite sensitive and the text reflected that. And in the comments section below the post, an active follower of the page offered some feedback. Hopefully the book is easier to read than this post, he wrote. A working man's game needs a working man's book. Now, from this comment, it was clear that I'd failed to meet what is the essential aim of my entire project. <laughs> so I was initially pretty disheartened after I read that. But if working on a project for several years teaches you anything, it is that setbacks and criticism, criticisms provide a space for growth when we're able to view them in that light. And so I replied, thank you so much for your comment. It's tricky to find a balance as some of this material is very sensitive and requires quite a lot of thought. But I do appreciate the feedback. Was it the use of specific words that prompted your comment or the thrust of the piece as a whole? And he replied, just read too academically. But if that's the route you're taking, that's fine. I went on to explain that that's not the route that I am taking, that I'm <laughs> and I joke that I'm trying to find some mythical, mythical middle ground between public accessibility and academic credibility. And then out of the blue, someone else joined the conversation, describing the original post as an awesome read and great summation. I grew up in a working class family, the user explained, encouraged by my dad to read all we could. Now, this comment was really affirming to me, 
because I grew up around working class people who were not formally educated, but who placed a high value on knowledge. So I wrote back, thank you. It is my hope that the book will honor the tradition of working class intellectualism that was once upon a time strong around work sites like the wharves and the coal mines. So I really appreciate your comment. But that feedback didn't take away from the earlier comment, which I took on board as I continued to develop the text. And a few months later, after posting additional material to the page, the same Facebook user who had criticized the earlier post offered a complimentary comment. Much more enjoyable this time, he wrote. Nice flow. <laughs> and there's a bizarre connection between League and Once Were Warriors. I've been at Warriors games where people around me will just quote verbatim whole sections of the, the movie. Um, yes, yeah, fascinating connection. As well as providing space where I can access feedback on my research outputs, social media has also proven to be a powerful tool to engage with people closely connected to the history that I am exploring. Of course, oral history interviews are a traditional research tool that allows historians to engage directly with people involved in the topic under discussion. And in my opinion, nothing can beat the experience of sitting down with someone and speaking to them about their lives at length. But oral history is a labour and time-intensive approach to the study of the past. As a result, there are limitations to the number of people that you can realistically engage with through this tool of historic inquiry. With social media, however, historians can gain access to a very large pool of people. And if the tools are used with respect and humility, they can provide a powerful space to tap into the vast amount of experiential knowledge that exists amongst the people and communities who are intimately connected to the topics that we are exploring. One of the most popular posts on the page, the Facebook page to date, explored the popularity of rugby league amongst New Zealand's patch street gangs. The post reached thousands of people, some of whom were gang members, and it was generally well received by them. Very interesting read, one user wrote. And another commented, what an awesome read, the man, Dennis O'Reilly, referring to one of the people referred to in the text. As with the Pacific Rugby League example, engagements with this post helped to affirm the value of the material to people closely connected to the stories being told. And as the post's popularity grew, the comment section below the post developed into a significant source of additional information about the topic. One follower of the page responded, fantastic read, and went on to tell me about the presence of gangs in the league competition around where he lives. And another follower joined in, explaining that the mob even had a second team called the Youngbloods in that area. The Black Power members used to play for Turanga Panthers, and now some play for the Falcons, the user went on. Most are productive members of society, and some aren't, just like any group. Several other users offered similar reflections on the presence of gangs in their local competitions. And then an entirely new comment thread popped up, when someone drew the connection between the game's popularity amongst gangsters in New Zealand and the sport's presence in prisons. What about the formation of the parry team, the user wrote. Paremorimo prison inmates played in the Auckland Senior B comp. That would have been a collective of different gang affiliates united by the game of league. In response to this comment, several other users responded with additional information about prison rugby league, including personal reflections about playing for or against prison teams. Yep, I played for the Paremorimo team a few times, one user wrote. It was the most well-behaved team in the competition. Taina Porter was hooker before he got out. And another replied, I played for Mount Crawford Prison when they had a team. 
I think we were under Maris Northern. And then in Rangipur, we played under the Topor Broncos, but after a couple of minor incidents, the team was withdrawn from the comp. Then the Turangi Dam Busters started recruiting inmates from Rangipur to play in their premier team alongside some prison officers. As you can imagine, the history of rugby league amongst patch street gangs and in New Zealand's prisons are topics with pretty short paper trails. There is the odd newspaper article and news story about prison rugby league, and the sport's popularity amongst gangsters is mentioned in the handful of books that explore the history of um, patched gangs in New Zealand. But beyond that, information about these elements of rugby league's history in New Zealand are confined to the memories of those involved, meaning that much of the detail that was posted below the Facebook post was new information to me. In turn, the information and detail offered by the page's followers in response to the post significantly expanded my understanding of this aspect of the game's social and cultural history in New Zealand. And as the Facebook page slowly developed a following, these sorts of engagements, where the audience of the page were enhancing my knowledge of the sport's history, became commonplace. Many followers of the page have shared their personal experiences of anti-league prejudice in secondary schools, and one has spoken of the game's informal exclusion from the armed services. Facebook users have shared photos to the page that speak to the sport's place in New Zealand society and culture and users have occasionally directed me to additional texts that offer more information about a topic mentioned on the page. And when I have made errors on the page, those mistakes have been brought to my attention. In speaking to the value that social media can bring to the work of 21st century historians, it is not my intention to suggest that these platforms represent a substitute for more traditional research methods. The research base of my book has been constructed with the traditional tools of the historian, primary documents, secondary sources, and oral history interviews. But it is my experience that social media can serve to get our research outputs before a very wide variety of people, and the resulting engagements made possible on the platforms can bring an enormous amount of value to our work. I'll give you another example. The role of women in the history of New Zealand Rugby League is a theme that runs through Rugby League in New Zealand history, but again, it is a topic that does not have a great deal written about it. In March 2019, I came across this wonderful photo of a Manirewa Marlins team on another Rugby League Facebook page with a comment suggesting that it was a women's team from New Zealand that toured Australia in 1976. I had come across information regarding the significant growth of women's rugby league in New Zealand in the 1970s, but the first overseas tour by a woman's side that I had previously heard about didn't take place until the 90s. So I posted the photo to the Facebook page with the comment, wow, what an amazing photo. If anyone out there knows names of the players, the team's name and details about the Australian tour, I'd love to find out more. And in response, a user commented below the post, identifying his mum as the person with the cat. I then interacted with the user on Facebook and subsequently via email, and he shared photos of a Facebook that, his, that was put together by his mum, Ngairi Fielding, after the team returned home. And the scrapbook is a treasure trove of information, including all the names of the woman involved, article clippings about the tour from local and Australian newspapers, and a couple of extra photos. 
As you can imagine, I was thrilled to make this connection with Mrs Fielding's son, Rod. The material he shared with me added significant additional information to my project's coverage of the development of the women's game in New Zealand. And what's more, I have not come across any information about the Monday with Marlins tour from any other source, meaning that without Facebook, this part of the game's local history would have passed my project by. All of the examples that I have spoken to so far highlight the value of the book's social media presence to the project itself. The page has been an invaluable space to place my research outputs before a wider audience. It has attracted engagement from academic historians, rugby league historians, and people with a passion and an interest in the game. This audience has brought significant value to the work, both through their engagements with the material shared and their willingness to bring new information and sources to my attention. But it is with some reflections upon the personal value of the page to my experience of working on the book that I would like to conclude this talk today. For those of you amongst us who are historians, you will know that our job or hobby can be a very isolating one. There is a great deal of time spent by ourselves and often in our heads, reading, writing and thinking and then doing that over and over again. But Rugby League in New Zealand History, the Facebook page, has offered something of a counterpoint to the sense of isolation. I still spend most of my working day alone, lost in the past, but thanks to the Facebook page, I do so in the knowledge that there are people out there who are actively interested in my efforts and supportive of what I am doing. In response to a post published at the end of 2018, an active follower of the page thanked me for my dedication and tenacity in providing something the game needed in this country. And in response to a post published last year, another follower of the page wrote, awesome work bro, please don't stop. I have never met these people in person, but I have felt a strong sense of warmth through their engagements with the Facebook page. So much so, that on those occasions when the cloud of self-doubt has descended upon me, I have drawn on comments like these to fuel my determination to see this project through to its end. So I would like to conclude this talk today by acknowledging all of those people who have engaged with the project's Facebook page over the last few years. In doing so, you have made this project and my experience of working on it so much better in so many ways. I hope that when the book finally comes out, you are able to take pride in the fact that you helped play a hand in its development. And thank you to those in the audience and to those listening to a recording of this sometime in the future for your attention today. Thank you, Ryan. As, as promised, we have plenty of time for uh, questions and comments, and um, we've got uh, a couple of microphones which we can hand around to people. Ryan, it's really awesome. Thank you. Um, I was interested in how you're engaging with people, and I see you've talked a little bit to Rod about this, about the ethics of taking images mm. from online. Um, how are you dealing with that in, in, in terms of your publication? There's not a singular approach. I guess you have to have a different approach to the institutions than the individuals, but um, a lot of it's just relationships, I think. Like, you establish a connection with people and they understand what you're about and um, and yeah, they can see that you're driven by something which might align with um, 
making them interested in supporting the co-papa. And um, I mean, I've just found I think the pro the, the Facebook page has ticked along for a while. People have seen what it's about, and um, people are interested in engaging with it to an extent because. Um, yeah, there's nothing, no, nothing formal. Just, um, just email him and be like, "This is all good." And um, yeah, nothing formal. Just, it's quite a nice difference from the formality that's expected within middle class circles. But I see, in terms of the publication, that you will acknowledge. Oh, for sure. Formally. Yeah, hard. Yeah, cool. Um, now yeah. I got to do that. That's um, that's one thing I've found too. That um, identifying the people in the photos is real important within that context too. Just to sort of acknowledge the massive contribution that they've played to the story being told and to honour them in that way. So, you know, um, make sure that um, the people whose collection it comes from and also the people who are in the photo are acknowledged as much as possible. Thank you. Hi, thanks for that. That was um, fantastic. I probably have a follow-on question from that because people are commenting and giving you extra information. So are you going to be using that information in the book as well and how are you kind of framing mm. it? Um, I haven't sort of used it specifically like to reference it, but say the Pacific, the Pacific one, out of that post I went to Tokoro and did interviews. Um, and there is that space to do that too with the... Um, the prison league, I had sort of tied up a few interviews, but it started to feel like it be was becoming a different topic entirely the more I went down there. So I wanted to hint at it, but um, yeah, it's more just giving me a more rounded um, idea of the context, like um, yeah, how things are being perceived from the community and how they're understood and just aff affirming what, what I've been thinking or um, taking me in new directions. So, yeah, partly it's just filling it out in my head, and partly it's leading on to new things. Yeah. Um, additional interviews, sorry, or additional research. Yeah. Hello, Ron. Hello. D d Hi. Could you have any idea of the, uh, the numbers of uh, people who have commented on the Facebook? Or the contributors who have contributed on the Facebook? I wouldn't know how many. Um, there's probably like... 20 to 30 active people who are often engaging with it and then I mean that one about the gangs just went um, that really ballooned out beyond anything else I'd ever done so that was um, yeah, that had just hundreds and hundreds of comments but um, in a way I just think it was like they just liked being talked, like, talked about like humans I think that was really important to them <laughs> um, you see how the Herald writes about them it's just a fucking disgrace <laughs> Hi Ryan. Hi Carrie. <laughs> Carrie has been a massive contributor to my project too, both on social media and off. Sorry, thanks so much Carrie. Oh, that's all right. Uh, it's not about me. Uh, the question though, I want to ask you, we all go down as historians to the National Library and look through papers, pass through newspapers and so on. I just wonder under the new norm now, how much you look under the different social media pages, the histories and so on, rather than the old diggings that we, we go mm. through. I don't really, I don't really explore f people's Facebook pages too much. I just like lots of them, and as it comes up, I sort of will delve into it. Um, so that's really important. Um, there is a lot of content on there, but a lot of it's very curated. So there's still a lot of value to the, just the, the bedrock of historical sources. 
Um, but no, there's... Um, I mean, social media, often when it is curated, it's take, there's new meaning there too. There's the meaning in the content, but there's also the meaning in the storytelling. So, um, I mean, yeah, huge amount of information to wade through. Um, and I've found a lot of gems. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure... Like how, how long are, I don't really know how it all works. Is that digital stuff going to be there accessible always or is it going to get lost? Or So I don't, um, definitely in the contemporary moment I find it useful, but how long it's going to be there for future historians, um, I don't know. It all feels very ephemeral really and um, momentary, um, sort of like everything now. Awesome, Ryan. Um, oh, how often do you feel that you need to post to keep this active and mm. what do you see the future of it sort of building on your previous answer do you hope to get this going after your book's finished no I'd like to get off Facebook as soon as possible <laughs> I only got back on Facebook because of this um, or at least that's what I tell myself um, so no I'd, I'd, I'd like to keep using social media in the, in the future I feel like it's a um, a tool that I f will use in for future projects but in terms of this page um, I don't have any great plans for it I um, Ross was just saying that there's a program now of um, placing digital records into um, institutions so that would be real cool but in terms of um, yeah I sort of conceived of this as going alongside um, the life of the project and finishing once the project's um, done. Um, yeah, so I don't think it will, I think it will finish soon, but like I say, I, I definitely will be using social media again, because um, it just democratises the whole process, I feel, and I mean, there's been awkward conversations that I've had to have on there, but um, that's alright too, because at the end of the day, it's their stories, and they should be able to hold me to account. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this will this will stop soon, but I reckon it will be part of my practice for a while. Um, I, I watched the Herbs documentary recently. Um, it, the The question of the dawn raids just fell out the film. Really, mm. it was a very much a, um, that and the anti-apartheid work. Uh, did, just, I'm not asking you if, if that's going to be in your book or anything like that, but it's, it, but it's um, I mean, I, the Herbs were a political band, I think, as mm. well, quite mm. self-consciously. So, and Rugby League isn't necessarily um, construct itself in that sort of way, oh. but I'm sort of interested in the way things, you know, might drop out the, the discussions that, you know, you might or might not feel are essential to include, um, but it could be anything. But for me, obviously, stuff like the Dawn Lades are very important. Yeah, my next potential project um, is about Bob Marley's influence and impact on New Zealand, and um, that came out of this, essentially just constantly seeing him appear um, on posters in people's houses I visited or on their Facebook feeds or... Um, and it's very much the same world, like City Newton, the club down Auckland Central, was closely connected to Bast the people, in the Hawks and Bastion Point, and a lot of the, because um, there was a maritime connection with the whanau there, and so they, a lot of those guys were leagueies, and um, 
a couple of the Herbs played for City Newton, so it's it's um, they were there were a lot of connections, and I mean the game was closely connected to working class life in Auckland, and so um, a lot of those Pacifica Māori responses had a lot of trade union support. So just the relationships were all connected there, um, and say so Will Ilulahia, um, who is one of the founders of the Polynesian Panthers, he was involved with League here in Tonga. So the connections are all there because um, League's a game for marginalised people because um, of what rugby union has been, either has or has, we've been told it represents in this country. So this, that, that, um, that other game represents, it, it brings those different people together who felt a sense of alienation from the established order. So they're all, they're all there, they're all thereabouts for sure. I mean, um, same scene. Same scene. Uh, Ryan, it's it's interesting. You've been given a talk demonstrating the power of the internet as a historical research tool. Yet you're clearly still thinking in terms of traditional book publication. Um, have you considered the possibility of publishing on the internet? You're you're probably. Uh, very keen to have a book, but even to publish supplementary material that may not go in the book, or a summary, so that, uh, because my experience is that you have no idea what p people poking around on the internet are after, and this is a way of actually making people aware of the work you've done, mm. and even as a useful marketing tool. Mm. If you have a summary there, you can point people to your book. Yep, yeah, and there's definitely lots of interesting conversations to be had in that regard with the publisher, but I guess... I'm a writer rather than a, um, a seller of books. I'd like to speak to the people who know how to do all that stuff and what that looks like in the contemporary, um, in, the, in the current moment. Um, I mean, there's a lot of scope for like um, linking some of the, because there's, there's an amazing amount of footage of the game and you sort of have this footage from back in the day and just the stuff that it captures around Carlaw Park or around these different places. It's interesting in and of itself. So there's a lot of sp um, scope for um, some online content, but yeah, definitely keen to have that conversation. But like I say, the um, just finished writing it, and I need to start turning my attention to that sort of stuff shortly. But thanks for the idea and the reflections. Oh, kia ora, Ryan. Andre Whitaker here from Monitor Rugby League. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Um, more of a comment and acknowledgement rather than a question. Uh, <coughs> just. Firstly, acknowledgements for the work you're doing and the book, and and you know subsequently the uh, the Facebook development that's brought more people into um, reflecting on the game. Oh, uh, I think, um, and kind of following on from the the last speaker, how it's opening um, a channel for people who may not think about um, reading research documents or history in a, in a formal manner than say some of the people in the room, mm. um, but will engage in. Um, bite-sized pieces of mm. um, history that interest them spe specifically, specifically that they can see on Facebook. And mm. I think particularly too, as you look at some of, the, as you've mentioned, some of the um, uh, the history of the people involved with rugby league around trade unions, working class environments, and very much face-to-face -face people. And uh, and as we also know, a lot of those environments in terms of trade unions and trade unions and working class environments aren't what they used to be and not a lot of the uh, connection is happening so um, great that you're opening a channel that they can re-engage um, 
and also perhaps you know it's another way that um, people who may not normally think of this as something they would do would start looking at um, formal research and history reading so just acknowledgement and comments really and um, good stuff from a um, broken nose rugby league player in the room yeah <laughs> hey that's um, that means a huge amount to me Andre thank you for that um, I mean that's part of the the idea really is to um, a move away from the idea that um, that thinking is for certain people because thinking is for everybody and um, engaging with thing with ideas makes life richer and um, just whenever I'd say to people at university why aren't we writing so people can read it they'd just be like they're not interested I was like nah man like you just make them feel like idiots because um, of the way that you write um, and yeah I mean as soon as I saw the um, academic value of the topic of rugby league, um, it was obvious that it could be a vehicle for getting people to think about it, um, to think more, because uh, they're already engaged in the in the sport, they're already interested in the sport, so that was an easy in. And then you start talking about things like Māori urbanisation or the um, diaspora of Pacific peoples, and that's their life story. And so then that starts to interest. And so. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's really great that that has um, sparked that interest because, like I say, I mean, I grew up with a granddad who left school when he was 14 and he had an insatiable intellectual curiosity. I didn't agree with hardly anything he came up with, but um, he, um, yeah, he made me know that learning was for me um, as well and it should be for everyone. We've got an education system that leaves a lot of people feeling like idiots and it's fucked up, it's unbelievable, but that's the norm. And um, to me, knowledge is one of the most beautiful things of life. So um, it's a privilege to be able to um, share it and absolutely humbling that, um, that it's um, reaching receptive ears. So thank you for your comment. Kia ora, Ryan. Um, Kia ora. Thanks for your talk and your research. Um, I'm just wondering about the geographic um, spread of the respondents. So you're getting quite a good spread across the country. You know, um, teams from the South Islands, Christchurch, the West Coast, Wellington. Um, mm. Sounds like you've got into some the smaller spots. Um, yeah, has it been a good tool for that? Yes, I guess when you say that it has, because um, it does have that immediate reach. There's no geographic limitations to it. I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, there's. I mean, I've made a conscious effort of trying to get around to Waitara, Greymouth. Hawks Bay, or like trying because I live in Auckland and that's where the game has always been most popular. I'm trying to make sure that it's not an Auckland focused history. Um, and it's been really useful as well for Australia because there's this massive pool of working class New Zealanders in Australia who essentially left here when they deindustrialised the place and went and got work there. So there's like they have um, heaps of sort of, particularly Māori rugby league over there is really strong and it's often around. Um, in Sydney, it's big, but also in like west with the mines and parts of Queensland, like there's there's a whole other story there of like a the increasingly trans Tasman nature of the Māori population, but also the migration of working people when they destroyed the industry here. They all a large number of them went there. Like you talk to work in working class communities, and so many of them will have uncles or cousins or people over there. Um, so that's been a real important connection. And someone wants to have a book launch over there, so that's been all through that. So. 
um, that's been really useful for that, I guess, spreading beyond, yeah, beyond New Zealand to Australia too, which is cool. Yeah, because the story sort of, the New Zealand rugby league history becomes an Australasian story later on, really, because the game just take, the game just becomes entirely reliant on the money of the broadcaster. Kia ora. Um, I was wondering if you tried any social media platforms other than Facebook, or if you would try any others in future projects. Yeah, I, w I would. I don't. Um, Facebook was just the most obvious, just because it allows. I guess the only one I'd think about in comparison is Twitter, and it's just much shorter um, spaces you can write. And also, I'm a super obsessive dude, so social media and me don't go very well together, so um, I try to keep my distance. But, um, yeah, I think it would be, there would be space for, um, for another social media platform, but um, it, was the prof it was the platform that I was familiar with, and um, I got back on to do this project. So, yeah, Instagram... Um, could be good. Are many of you young people into Bob Marley? you have much to say about Bob Marley? <laughs> Kia ora, Ryan. Uh, Sione here. Kia ora, um, Sione. I don't have an Instagram. I'm still on Facebook. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, um, thanks for an awesome presentation. Thank you, Sione. I just want to touch on one of the things you just mentioned. So you talked about rugby league, of rugby league uh, being a platform for those who are alienated from the established order. Can you unpack that just a little bit more? Yeah, I guess that's the sort of one of the broader, th part of the central thesis of the book is to say, well, here's this game which, when it came here, it came with a whole lot of baggage which existed in um, England because um, it had split from rugby union over the issue of player payment um, in 1895. Um, so it had a clear class dimension in England. When it came here, it very much took that on too because... Um, the way that the rugby union compensated its players was, um, yeah, it was essentially to under, underpay or n not to compensate them in full with the idea, or at least the ethos developed in a place where compensation wasn't that important because everybody had plenty of coin. But once working class people started playing it, that way of approaching the issue of compensation just wasn't fair in their context because they couldn't go and play football and be away from work. And so there was this issue that arose. That's what rugby league was formed over. And so that same thing happened here um, in the um, early 20th century. Rugby union people are, um, at that time were, I mean, they were pretty much just a social and economic establishment. They were, they were all the same people. They all got educated at the same schools and they, um, yeah, so that was that was their game, and they really, when rugby league was formed, they really, really attacked it, doggedly, um, and and so all throughout the 20th century, there's this, the game is confined to these pockets of working class areas, or to say the Kingitanga and Ngarawahi Huntley, who are very um, historically very antagonistic towards the crown, or Irish Catholics in the South Island who. Um, embrace rugby league in response to sectarianism pandered to by rugby union and patch gangs and I mean because rugby union is just part of New Zealand Inc right it's just like the brand of New Zealand now and um, and rugby league offers something different it's, it's not necessarily better but it's way more real
Um, so yeah, I think it. I think that's just a long history in this country because rugby union has been has meant has has, me, has been we've been told it means so much to so many people, and um, rugby league has. I mean, it doesn't. It, it hardly even features in the histories. Like like, they're just. Yeah, even the historians maintain the marginalisation, to be honest. It's so deep, they don't even see it. It's, um, yeah, but that's just my contention, that class issues run through the society so deeply that they, can't, they are not seen because they're just part of the woodwork. Um, and so that's why this project really attracted me, because it was like, here's a game which is so clearly based on class that nobody can deny it. And... Um, and that's, yeah, that's just one aspect of it, this, uh, the alienation. But I think because in the school system, the councils, the people in authority really had it in for this game. And so it developed that... Um, it developed that identity um, both without and within where people, they sort of... Yeah, they, they use it as a marker of their identity as standing at odds with, with that game, which... Um, essentially just bullies, just bullies, but that's the state. <laughs> that's what the state is, I think. Well, thanks everyone for some really interesting questions and comments there. Um, we better bring things to a close. I'd just like to thank um, Ryan again for, it was a really fascinating and thought-provoking and entertaining talk today, so please join me in thanking. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand history podcast from Manatu Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand history. Mātewa!